John was written by John. Figured that out all by myself. Um, John was a human. John was writing towards the end of his life. So John was a guy who spent time with Jesus in the flesh. So he was there three years. He spent time with Jesus in the flesh every day. Um, and then after that, Jesus ascended into heaven. And, and John spent the next 60 years of his life hanging out with Jesus in the spirit. And some of you, that might sound crazy or whatever, but we'll explain some more of that. Um, but for those three years in the flesh, he got to be with Jesus. And after spending 60 years being with Jesus in the spirit, he's about 90 years old or so, and he's, he decides it's time for him to write about his experiences for those three years with Jesus in the flesh. So that's what he's doing. Um, he calls himself in the book of John. He doesn't use his name. He just says he's the one that, that Jesus loved. Um, not saying he's the only one that Jesus loved, but that's really what he felt. He really felt Jesus' love. He's the one who leaned against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. John is the only male disciple of Jesus who was there when Jesus was on the cross. So at one point, we know Jesus had about 120 people that were calling themselves his disciples. At one point, there were 70, and he sent them out. At one point, he said, eat my body and drink my blood, and then he only had 12. It's kind of an eliminator there. That's funny, right? That's not funny? All right. Um, so anyways, then he had 12, but even those 12 didn't all pan out quite right. Um, but John was the only one out of all of those who was at the cross. There were some women because they figured things out better than men, but um, John was the only male disciple there at the cross. John has written all of these things, he told us, so that we would believe in Jesus. So if you get to the book of John 21 and you haven't been encouraged to believe in Jesus, you didn't read it right, or maybe I didn't teach it right. Um, so he wants you to believe in Jesus. And when John says the word believe, it's different than Paul. Paul kind of uses the word belief or faith as like a pledge of allegiance. Um, John uses it more as trust over time. He basically is telling us the story how one day he met this guy named Jesus and he began to trust him a little bit and Jesus proved himself trustworthy so he began to trust him more. Jesus proved himself trustworthy, he began to trust him more. At one point he, he turned water into wine and John said at this point the disciples begin to believe in him. They begin to trust more in him. And then he saw him heal people from diseases that could not be healed. And they believed in him a little. They trusted him a little more. And then he saw him walk on water. He saw him feed 5,000. All these different things. He heard some of the things he said. And they began to trust him a little bit more. And so John, at the end of, uh, uh, of Jesus' life on earth, at the end of his life, he is just saying he completely trusts in Jesus. And as he writes, what he's happening is that we'll begin to trust more and more in Jesus. So that we'll begin to sing out songs of faith from the places that used to be full, so full of despair, fear, pain, and doubt. We'll sing the song, the, that old song, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust you, how I've proved you over and over. If you're going to kind of say what hymn, you know, you would attach to what apostle. It's a weird Christian game <laughs> that no one's ever played before. I just made it up. Um, but I think that would be the song that, would, that John would love to sing. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust you, how I've proved you over and over. So, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. You ready? Man, there is like nobody here today. But there's so many people here. Who's ready? Who's ready? Who's ready? Here we go. We're in church, man. There's a lot of people here. It should be fun. Um, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. So it's about seven, so it's not all of them. 
And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So a lot of events have transpired. Um, A lot of stuff is going on in the disciples' lives, and Peter's just like, forget it, man, I'm going fishing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood at the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, (laughs) do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Peter, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he, stripped, he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Maybe he thought he would walk. I don't know. It didn't work out. He just sunk. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about 100 yards off. And when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place um, because, you know, grilling with propane is not really grilling. <laughs> They're going to keep coming, you know, so you might as well just get used to it. Um, yeah, where, where, I don't even know where I am at this point. Um, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, um, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he had raised from the dead. So, awesome story. Jesus shows up on the shore. His guys, his guys are out in the boat. Um, Peter, that's where he found Peter the first time, was on the boat. He said, cast your net on the other side. Peter's like, Psh, you're some like rabbi guy. I'm a fisherman. Don't tell me what to do. All right, whatever, I'll do it. And he catches a bunch of fish. So now Jesus is there once again on the shore. John and, and Peter and, and the other disciples are in the boat. They caught nothing. They're frustrated because they caught nothing. They're frustrated because they're totally confused at what's going on. They're frustrated because Jesus is not there in the flesh anymore. They're confused about all the stories they're hearing. Jesus has shown up to them twice already, mind you. This is the third time. And, uh, and they see this guy on the shore. He's made a fire, and he calls out to them, casting it on the other side. So probably something in them was like, maybe? They cast the net on their side. They catch all the fish. They're like, Maybe? And John's like, yeah, it's the Lord. And so Peter jumps in and runs over there. Um, and they have this little time with Jesus around the fire. And there's a couple things I want us to, to draw out of this chapter. The third one is, is the most important. We'll spend the most time there. But the first two, I, I want us to understand resurrected life. It's a very, very important thing. This is one of the tenets of the Christian faith. We believe in the resurrection life. And resurrection life is not kind of like life that you get back. So Lazarus, when he rose from the dead, did not, res- did not get resurrection life. He resurrected to normal life. He didn't resurrect to res- resurrection life, which means that he died again. It's not like a cat, you get nine lives, you just kind of keep dying or like respawning in a video game or whatever. Resurrection life is different than that. And Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection life. He is the first one to enter into resurrection life. It's life that is not limited anymore. Not limited by the laws of nature. Not limited by sin. 
in the battle there. Not limited by the curse that sin has brought. Not limited by death. It's not that you, if you die again, you rise again. No, it's that you don't die anymore. And so we get to see this little glimpse into what that's like for us. And it's little and it's small, for sure. But Jesus, when he rose from the dead, his body was not in the tomb. His body, his physical body was somehow part of his glorified state. So much so that these people, when they see him, they, they, they see him as human. They're not like, is that an alien on the shore? They see him and they see it's a person, but, but they don't recognize that it's Jesus until they recognize that it's Jesus. You get how confusing this is? There's something so unique about this resurrected state. First of all, freedom from all the limitations, which is so awesome. But then also there's this, there's this uniqueness to it where you're still recognizable as you do the things you do or say the things you say, but you're not really recognizable because you just you, you look different. And so you have the disciples sitting there with Jesus around the fire. They just caught the fish. They know it's him. John said it's him. And they're all sitting there going, be like, somebody needs to ask, is it him? Is it really him? And I don't know if that's more. They're just so challenged with the reality that it's like Jesus died. How can he be sitting here with fish? And so it's just so hard for their mind to get around that. Or if Jesus actually just looked different enough to where they're like, I think it's him, but I don't know it's him. And so they're just sitting there, and like the disciples always did, they're just like thinking among themselves. It's got to be him. Is that? No, we shouldn't ask. We should ask. Is it okay to ask? I don't know if it's okay. That's what they're doing, because that's the state. But one of the things that is also so important about the resurrected life, and this is one of my favorite things about it, is that you, every time you see Jesus, he's eating, right? That's good news. That's good news. So the eating game will continue past this. You can eat fish. You can still catch fish. I like fishing, so those are big deals for me. But it's usually fish and bread, so I'm hoping that that's, not, that's just all they had. That's not like all we will have. But uh, whatever. I'm sure it'll taste good at that point. Um, the next thing, so that's resurrected life, glorified life, something to look forward to. It's a hope that we have. It's beautiful. It's awesome. And uh, I love the songs that sing about it as well. So then the other thing is we have a transition happening between the covenants. So here for the Bible students in the room, if you love this type of stuff, um, basically we have the Old Covenant, Old Testament. We have the New Covenant, New Testament. Um, they're all the same covenant. It's all God wanting to bring salvation to people through justification by faith. So the Old Testament, basically what they were supposed to do is believe that God would provide a sacrifice for sin, that God himself would provide a sacrifice for sin. It's actually words that Abraham spoke to his own son. So they believed that God would. Now the new covenant, is we, we just believe the same thing. We just believe that God has, if that makes sense. So it's the same. I actually wrote a, a, an essay in, in a seminary, Bible college, in Bible college, and it was basically, I called it the covenant mountain. So it's, it's all the same substance. It's all the same mountain, justification by faith. Same God, same people, same problems, all of that. And, and, and the same solution is Jesus. It's always Jesus. It always will be Jesus. He's the solution. Now, here's the trick. Here's the trick. When does the covenant reach its pinnacle of the old and begin the new? That's not so easy question. You think the cross, right? Jesus purchased, you know, purchased the new covenant. He purchased with his blood the new covenant, he said. So you would think the cross is where that happens, where now we begin the new covenant. But without the resurrection, the cross really is meaningless. It's just another guy dying. 
But, so then the resurrection becomes super significant, so maybe it's the resurrection. But, with, but without the resurrection, Jesus said there was something else so important, that was when the Spirit would come. And so in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes, and when the Spirit comes, that's the guarantee of the new covenant. So now we have proof that the new covenant has come. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? That's fine. Don't worry. This is just extra credit stuff right here. It won't be on the test. Um, but basically, what we're experiencing in, the, in, these, in these John chapter 20 and 21, all the way through to Acts chapter 2, is we're experiencing these 40 days of plateau on top of the mountain. I didn't say this in my paper because I didn't know this yet. So if I was going to rewrite the paper, I'd write it this way. I don't remember what I said. I was just trying to fill up space so I could get enough words or something like that. But anyways, so it was like the top of this mountain is like this 40-day plateau from when Jesus died on the cross to when he ascended and the Spirit came. It's basically this transition between the covenants. It's the time between the times. And Jesus is showing up not in the flesh. He's showing up uh, in the resurrected state in between the time where he was in the flesh and the Spirit comes. So it's just an interesting, fascinating thing. Not a lot to draw out of there. I just want you to be ahead of that. Basically, the Father gave the Son, and then the Son gives the Spirit, and then the Spirit gives us the love that we need and the power that we need to, 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 to love God and love people in the way we're supposed to. So then the last thing that I want to really emphasize is the redemption of Peter, the restoration of Peter, the reinstating of Peter. And we get this in this next chunk, um, starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Another good question for you know, Bible students is what is the word these? What's he referring to? Is he talking about the other disciples? Is he talking about the fish? Is he talking about do you love me more than the other ones, these other disciples love me? Um, and Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Because Peter's real fresh in his mind is that in John chapter 19, Peter denied Jesus three times at Jesus' real moment of truth. And he says, do you love me? And, and, and Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk around wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. The very first words that he said to Peter, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. It's this really important moment that John makes sure the other gospel writers did not include this. John saying, hey, you got to know about this story. The story where Jesus showed up to Peter. And, and what he gave us in chapter 20, I loved what Ryan shared last week on chapter 20, but basically Jesus shows up to Mary. And Mary was locked up in this like frustration and anger at injustice. Mary basically was so upset, she was distraught because they had taken the body of Jesus and she was yelling at the gardener and yelling out, who took him, where have you taken him? And basically she was kind of once again stung with that pain of, of powerful men and what they have taken from her. We don't know all the details of her story, but we know that she ended up being a prostitute. And, and how you get to that, you know, Ryan talked a little bit about that, how powerful men had stolen from her enough to where now she found herself 
as a prostitute and even demon-possessed. And then the most powerful man comes along, Jesus, and he calls out to her and saves her. And healing has begun. And yet now powerful men have killed Jesus. And not only that, but they have taken his body. And she's so distraught because it once again just reopens all of that wound. And yet there in that moment, she sees the gardener not knowing, not recognizing that it's Jesus. And she said, where have you taken him? And the gardener, Jesus, says, Mary. And he hear, she hears that same voice, that same name spoken in his tone. And all of a sudden, she's undone once again the healing gets a little deeper into her soul. And then the very next thing that John tells us is don't forget about when he showed up the first time to the disciples. And there they were all, it literally says, it says they were shut up in fear. They were locked in a room because they were so afraid. They were locked up in fear. And Jesus meets them in that space and says, do not fear. And he actually breathes on them. He does something so personal, so tangible. And that would be weird if I breathed on you. Won't do that. Don't worry about that. But if Jesus does, it's super cool. But he breathed on them, and they received some peace. And then shortly after that, he shows up again to the disciples because Thomas wasn't in that group, and Thomas is basically saying, yeah, that's great. I'm glad you guys all had this experience, but I've always thought you guys were a little weird, so I'm not taking your word for it. I need to see the wounds. I need to touch them. I need to put my hand in his side if I'm going to believe. And so Jesus shows up a second time to the disciples, and Thomas is in the room, and he looks around, and he says, hey, Thomas. <laughs> Thomas is like... Me? And he's like, yeah, Thomas, you, come here. So Thomas comes up and he says, go ahead. Go ahead, Thomas. And Jesus is giving them something so supernatural but so natural. He's meeting them right where they are, locked up in, in these things. Thomas is locked up in doubt and confusion. And Jesus comes in and he gives them something tangible, something practical, something in the natural to help him get released and unlocked. And then now we have this story where Jesus is doing the same thing, but now he's calling out Peter. And John doesn't want, he doesn't want us to miss it. And so Jesus calls out to him and says, Peter, do you love me? And the, in the Greek, it's, there's a little trick in here, but basically it's, Peter, do you agape me? Which, do you sacrificially love me? Do you unconditionally love me? And Peter knowing what he had just done, still feeling the shame now of sitting with Jesus after he denied him and heard that rooster crow. He says, I phileo you. He doesn't say I agape you. He says, I love you like a friend, like a brother, and it's very conditional, and I'm sorry. And then he says, but Peter, that's good enough for me. Will you feed my sheep? And then Jesus says to him, do you agape me? And Peter says, you know that I love you. You know that I phileo you. And, Peter, and Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And then the last time, a third time, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter's hurt. All that shame of what he had just done, of how often he had failed in all of his life, is weighing so heavy upon him. As Jesus asked him the third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know I phileo you. And Jesus says, that's good enough for me, Peter. 
feed my sheep. And then he begins to tell Peter all of the hard, hard things he's going to go through. Basically, Peter, if you thought that was hard, it's now your turn to go to the cross. And he says, and all I'm asking is that you keep following me because I'm the one who's going to make you the fisher of men. Will you follow me? And Peter's response is so beautiful. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who had also leaned against him during the Last Supper and said, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, what about him? (laughs) Jesus is having this moment. He's drawing Peter in. He's saying, Peter, we can do this. Take my hand. Follow me. Feed my sheep. I got a massive calling for you. And if you let shame take it away from you right now, you're going to miss everything. But I'm here, Peter, and I'm praying for you. The devil desires to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying for you. And Peter, I'm here giving you fish. Saying, I want you to do something for me, Peter. I want you to represent me, Peter. I'm going to give all of the people. On you, I'm going to build the church. All the little lambs are going to need you, Peter. I want you to fight for them. I want you to care for them. I want you to tend them. Peter's like, what about John? (laughs) What about John? And Jesus, and then John kind of inserts a little bit of his own thing. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that, that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that to him, that he was not going to die. He just said, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not obtain the books that would be written. So John is here just kind of putting his seal, his signature on the end of this thing, saying that this is what's said, and John's now, you know, maybe wondered that. Did Jesus mean that I would be alive? I wouldn't die? But now he's 90 years old, and he's going... No, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. <laughs> pretty sure I'm going to die, and that's okay because that's not really what Jesus said. But in this moment, I want us to really just kind of pay attention to what Jesus is doing here and what John is wanting us to see, that Jesus was meeting with each of these people individually in a very practical way. He was giving them something to hold on to. He was reinstating them. He was reconnecting with them. And he was doing it in a very supernaturally natural way. Not in a supernatural wild way, but in a supernatural way that made perfect sense to them personally. And honestly, that's what I think the Lord wants to do right now for each of us. We had a really neat time for service. We had a lot of people come forward for prayer and get to hear a rhema word, a word from heaven about their earthly situation. And what I sensed as I was preparing this message was that this message was just a setup. It wasn't really something to stand alone. It was just to set up what we're going to do right now. We're going to have a time of waiting on the Lord to see if he would meet us who are locked up in despair and anger at all of the injustice and disappointments. He wants to meet us who are locked up in fear after a year of constant uncertainty and we can feel our, our feet begin to slip, our relationship with the Lord begin to waver. He wants to, to set us free, those who are locked up in doubt and confusion, 
who just can't seem to get their mind around why God would allow certain things to happen. And what they really need to do is they need to touch his scars and feel his heart. And we're gonna spend some time praying for those who might have become so identified with all of their weakness and shame that they don't even know what God is calling them to. Or maybe they've forgotten what God is calling them to. Or maybe they stopped really believing that God could be calling them to anything. And they've disqualified themselves like Peter. Those things are not supposed to go with you from this room. Those chains, those things that are binding you up, as Jesus is talking to Peter, it reminds me of this song that a guy, John Foreman, wrote. And this song hit me the first time when I was listening to it because I was in Dan Griega, um, Belize, working with a bunch of kids with my wife. And, and these kids all came from real broken homes, real troubled situations. And, and I remember we were trying to do church one night, and then they, a fight broke out, which was not that uncommon. <laughs> it was an interesting church time we were having. Um, and these two kids, they're probably 12 years old, and they're just going at each other. Like, literally, I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and kind of my default move in that regard is to be like, oh, look how much they love each other. Because um, then it usually is like enough of a little bit of embarrassment. Like, you know, I don't love them. Then they stop fighting. So that's kind of my trick. And so it worked. And, and I was like, oh, he loves me too. And I just kind of hugged one of them, which was, again, just trying to get him out of the situation and kind of deflect some of the, the, the anger in the moment. And, and I, was this, I was hugging this kid, and he was hugging me. And, and then I didn't want to embarrass him, so I started to release. But when I started to release, he grabbed me so much tighter. And then I looked down, and he was just weeping. He was totally weeping, and, and I was thinking about these words and how this kid, this kid doesn't want to be like this. And the more I got to know this kid, this kid was sweet, he was kind, but he had been taught that this is the way he had to, had to go. This is the way he had to live. This is the only thing he could do when he's in those situations. And, and, I, and these words were so powerful at that time. It says this, we learn to wear these masks so young, like a prison that keeps joy from getting through. And an angry silence grips our tongues. These weapons and our walls become our tombs. Yes, we're the kids who've seen the darkness, always looking for the light. You fall in love and then the rains come down and only part of you survives. Come surrender your hidden scars. Leave your weapons where they are. You've been hiding, but I know your wounded heart and you don't know how beautiful you are. And then this guy Galway Kennel was writing about St. Francis of Assisi and what he was able to do with the people around him. And he says, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow and retell it in words and in touch its lovely until it flowers again from within. And this is what Jesus is wanting to do. And I don't know your stories. I don't know your situation. I don't. And, 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 it's, and I don't really care that much because I know what God is telling me, what your Father in heaven is telling me he wants to do for you right now. And if we're faithful to do our part and just surrender and show up, he'll be faithful to do his part. 